and gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So uh, yesterday at AI, we did this great event about the anniversary of the March on Washington. AI's uh, president, Robert Doerr, who is uh, also a uh, not only a handsome man, but a powerful man, is deeply invested for all sorts of patriotic and civic reasons, but also because his... Uh, dad, John Doerr, was a heroic figure in the civil rights struggles um, of the 1960s in his role at the Justice Department. So it was a great event. And one of the speakers was Ian Rowe. And Ian is a colleague of mine at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm a fan of his stuff. And the second he got, I saw him on stage, it was like, oh, crap, we were supposed to have him on the podcast like two years ago. And <laughs> so I buttonholed him right outside and said, yeah, I'd like to get you on. And he actually made himself available for today. So very quickly, who is Ian Rowe? Ian Rowe is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on education and upward mobility, family formation, adoption. He's also the co-founder of, of Vertex Partnership Academies, a new network of character-based International Baccalaureate High Schools, the chairman of the board of the Spence Chapin of Spence Chapin, a nonprofit nonprofit adoption services organization, and the co-founder of the National Summer School Initiative. His work speaks seeks to inspire young people of all races to build strong families and become masters of their own destiny. So, with that all out of the way, Ian, welcome to the Remnant. Great to be here. That was an exhausting uh, bio. So, hopefully, I get to live up to it. Yeah, I. I I, I personally hate long bios. <laughs> I'll do less things. I'll do less. Yeah. Things. <laughs> no, I mean, when they introduce, when they read my bio and you know, I they, know. it's like this long, it's like no one cares, you know? Um, but it, it, for your purposes, for my listeners, it's good to contextualize. So why don't we sort of st- start with, uh, the stuff that's not in the bio, like that's the, the bio there is more actually like a resume. Uh, why don't you just sort of, Tell the story of who is Ian Rowe in terms of more like more like more. I don't want to say, you know, you shouldn't be self eulogizing, uh, but, um, you know, you're you're originally from Jamaica. Why don't we just sort of start there? Got well, right. I was going to ask if I should start with my uh, stint at Chippendales. <laughs> Please don't actually. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. Um, well, my origin story, like with most people, uh, begins uh, with my family. Uh, my parents, uh, Vincent and Eula, uh, grew up in Jamaica, West Indies. They met uh, young. Um, they met early. Uh, my dad, uh, in the country of Jamaica, on their dates, he used to pick her up uh, on horseback. You know, very romantic. Um, you know, later in life, my mom always said, what happened to the guy that picked me up on horseback? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, uh, but they, you know, they started this wonderful adventure together and, uh, he, uh, my dad felt he had reached his maximum education level in Jamaica. So, uh, he went to London, um, uh, because at the time Jamaica was an English Commonwealth and he started school there and he was missing my mom. So he wrote for her hand in marriage, uh, wrote to her parents to say, I miss my buds, which is what they called each other. And uh, there was a lot of you know, consternation in the row in the Sivrite household at the time, um, because uh, like yeah, we know Vincent, but we don't we don't know if our daughter should marry him. And 
And uh, they ultimately said yes. And uh, so my mom, at 19 years old, took a boat uh, 5,000 miles uh, from Jamaica to England all by herself. And they got married and they started this incredible adventure. Um, They had my brother and then they had me seven years later. And, you know, what was interesting about this time and, you know, relevant to our conversation yesterday about the March on Washington, all of this was happening while my parents were witnessing what was going on in the United States. You know, they, they knew that the United States was in the midst of all this turmoil, particularly around the issues of race, but they saw things happening. They saw the Voting Rights Act. They saw the March on Washington. Uh, they saw the Civil Rights Act and they just saw opportunity. Uh, and my dad actually ultimately applied to become an engineer at IBM. So he's one of the first black engineers at IBM. So we came to the United States uh, in 1968, you know, <laughs> not exactly the, the calmest year in American history. Uh, but, you know, they came in search of the American dream. They thought that uh, there was opportunity here that didn't exist elsewhere. They thought they could find their way not only for themselves, but also for their two sons. And they built a life. You know, we first, uh, we moved to Brooklyn, you know, Boogie Down Brooklyn, other, you know, different from the Boogie Down Bronx. <laughs> and then we moved on up to Queens um, as we sort of built a middle-class life and moved to Laurelton, Queens. And I'm happy to share a story that occurred in Laurelton, which in many ways mimics what my mom went through when her parents allowed her to make a huge uh, decision. Sure. So I can, I can share that story. But, you know, my, ultimately my parents were married for 48 years uh, before my dad passed away and my mom recently passed away. And um, so I believe I'm a big believer in marriage, what strong marriages can mean for kids, strong families. It's the wealth, wellspring of almost all good things. My parents had a strong faith commitment. They placed a high value on education. So, you know, as much as I research a lot of these factors, I, you know, my quote unquote lived experience very much, uh, I know it's possible when the right institutions are working for kids and um, help shape the moral character, skills, behaviors of who, you know, who you want to develop as a young person. Yeah. I mean, so like one of the long running themes on, on this podcast and in my writing is I can state it negatively or I can state it positively, but it's, it's the negative form of it is I think the single most arguably the single most pernicious message in American life is this idea that for want of a better term, middle-class values, bourgeois values, traditional values, however you want to phrase it is a white thing. Mm. And the reality is, is that the, what, one of the things that you take to heart and we can talk about it, you know, this success sequence stuff of yep. get as much as your education as you can before you get married, get married before you have kids, have a commitment to, as you put it, a faith commitment of some kind. Yep. And, and, and throw work in there too. Right. And work. Right. You know, I mean like, but like the Protestant work ethic or, you know, and frankly, the Jewish work ethic of work hard, be honest, honest dealings, uh, meet expectations, all these kinds of things. If you do those things, if you've got that software in your system, it's not a guarantee you'll be rich, but it's damn close to a guarantee that you won't be poor and, and you'll have a good life. And to say that's only for white people is one of the most sinister, vicious, evil things you can do because it is just generally a rule of life. And there is this this idea that wants to sort of say that that stuff is just 
well, that works for white people. No, it really works for everybody. Well, that's the whole idea. And we're, we're living at a time where people who react the way that you do, when they, wait a minute, this, you cannot, you cannot, you know, I run schools, right? In, mm-hmm. in the heart of the, the Bronx, you know, low-income communities, primarily black and Hispanic kids. And people say, you can't teach that because A, you know, these kids, their families haven't um, made those decisions, right? And so you'll be shaming them. You'll be embarrassing them. And even worse than that, you'll be taking attention away from the real issue that's holding people back, the structural racism, all these institutional barriers. And so we're in this weird time where even just talking about this idea of agency, of self-determination, of leading a self-determined life with meaning and purpose and integrity, somehow that is an excuse for, well, no, that's only in the province of white people. And that doesn't apply to our kids in the hood. It's pernicious, as you said. Um, it's hypocritical because mm-hmm. many of the people who are saying those things, in fact, often have finished their education, gotten work. You know, they haven't had children outside of marriage. They usually have a faith commitment of some kind. And so, as Charles Murray often says, they are not preaching what they have practiced in their own life. And I, you know, I'm on a mission. You know, I'm on a mission both in running my own schools to demonstrate that we can teach these things in a way that is constructive and not embarrassing for children, but also just to change the narrative and to provide an empowering alternative to people who are ignoring the obvious things. Strong families matter. And by the way, we can elevate the ideal without demonizing the non-ideal. Right. So you can say married two parent households is the best environment for children. It is. It just is. And we can say that without someone taking umbrage and saying you're criticizing single moms. And, and it's a dance. I, I, I acknowledge that and we need to find ways to communicate that we actually care about kids. We care about environments. We're not demonizing you, but we are doing a disservice to the rising generation when we are not honest about the things that really matter to kids. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the ways I try to deal with that is when people say is to flip it around instead of saying, we're not necessarily saying that all single moms are bad or are failures or that their kids are going to turn out rotten or any of that kind of stuff is to also concede that we're talking about essentially a statistical generalization. Right. And so, right. In the aggregate, all other things being equal, two parent households are better than single parent households. But that not only does not that not mean that single parent households are always disasters. It also doesn't mean that two parent households are always super terrific, fantastic. Sometimes you have families with two parents that are crappy parents or that they are so violently opposed to each other or their kids or irresponsible. They mess things up. But that's why you use the phrase all things being equal. Right. Because because you're, you're, you're just talking about statistical tendencies. And I think the data is just so clear on that. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, we have a class called pathways to power. Um, and in this class, we actually teach, uh, the success sequence. Now we teach it in what I call a prescriptive fashion. Um, I'm sorry, sorry. We, we teach it in a descriptive fashion, not prescriptive, meaning that, and, and for your listeners, the data says if you finish at least a high school degree, then get a full-time job of any kind. You certain, so you learn the dignity and discipline of work. And then if you get married, if you have children, marriage first. That series mm-hmm. of decisions, education, work, marriage, and children, 
the data says 97% of millennials avoid poverty if they follow that series of decisions, and the vast majority enter the middle class or beyond. To your point, it's not 100%. And so we teach other pathways too, like here are other orders of decision making, and here's the economic likelihood of what your outcomes will be. It's almost, we actually frame it like a probabilities class, Mm -hmm. right? Just what you said, statistical generalizations or probabilities. Life, your decisions, whether you, you're the architect of your own life. That's the idea. But we as education leaders need to educate you on what, what does the best evidence say? about the decisions that you're going to make in your own life. So I have a question about that. And it's sort of a devil's advocate question. Um, I had Tom Sowell on here a while back and, you know, he makes this argument in a couple of his books that talking about basically this point about how stable two parent black families perform perfectly fine in the aggregate and economically in the United States. And he would, and one of the points he makes is among family, among black families with library cards, they do better than white families without library cards. And his point isn't necessarily that having a library card puts you on this path to success. It's that if you're the sort of people who have a library card, that says something about the kind of person that you are, right? And it's, it's, a, it's a marker. And so I, I do wonder, what do you say to people who say, well, yeah, the success sequence is great, but isn't, it doesn't get the causation backwards because it's really the kind, if you come up in the kind of family that encourages these behaviors, then, well, of course you're going to have that sequence of events because that's what's expected of you. And it's, it's not necessarily the actual sequence. It's the preconditions that make you want to follow something like the success sequence. I mean, I'm not, that's not really my position, but I'm just kind of curious what you think about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I run schools, right? So the whole idea is I'm trying to develop <laughs> the kinds of kids who become the people that you're talking about. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, our, you know, Vertex Partnership Academy is our new high school. It's organized around the four cardinal virtues, courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And within each one of those cardinal virtues, and, and the reason that we, we've made those the anchor for our school is that those are the virtues that everything else comes from personal responsibility, agency, all of these things emerge from a commitment to living out those virtues. So yeah, I mean, I, I hear this argument all the time, Ian, you're, you're, yeah, you're getting it backwards. Like, okay, I don't know, maybe that's true. But when you're 12, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you haven't yet become the person that you're going to be, or you haven't developed the moral framework for how you make decisions in your life. And so maybe it's true that if you're married, you're predisposed to value education. And by the way, that is not always the case. And to the degree, again, we'll, we'll talk about, uh, you know, my book agency, like I've created this framework called free family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. The interesting thing about, uh, cause I believe all of those factors actually matter. What's interesting about Thomas Sowell's, uh, example, you said, Married couples certainly do well, but marriage with a library card, meaning that there's value on education, implies that those are two institutions that are working in the kid's favor. And then if you add a personal faith commitment on top of that, that's the trifecta. That's the trifecta for kids. And even the success sequence, I mean, I talked about it yesterday, 
it's a very technical intervention. It's, it's education, work, you know, and then uh, children before marriage. I thought it was lacking uh, the moral dimension, which is why I've created a whole new framework called Free, where I add in the importance of religion. But yeah, I hear the point. And I mean, one could argue, these are the things, lots of people argue these things <laughs> all day long. It's causal. It's not causal. You know, blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, well, while you're spending your time arguing about that, I'm going to try and build institutions that are helping young people develop the habits of mind and the virtues so that they become the people that you're saying are just predisposed to engage in these positive behaviors. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could... Look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So just you know, give, me, give me the sort of elevator pitch about how the, the schools actually work. I mean, uh, again, I think you probably, I, I suspect, I don't know, uh, that you're going to have some of these causation correlation controversies about the kind of parents who want to send their kids to a school like yours. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so like of who's, who's yeah. going to your, who's going to your school? What's the actual, what's the full curriculum? How much grief do you get from the teachers unions? You know, the whole, <laughs> right. the whole spiel. So, so I've been running public charter schools in the Bronx since 2010. So, you know, before that I, you know, I'd worked at the Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates foundation, you know, we gave away $470 million in one year 
just for uh, trying to understand how to get more uh, kids uh, to achieve post-secondary success. And what we found was that we were giving money to institutions, community colleges, high schools, but frankly, a lot of the money was to remediate kids that were coming into college, you know, reading at a seventh grade level, right? You know, they weren't academically prepared. They certainly weren't financially prepared. They weren't culturally prepared for the rigor of uh, what it means uh, to attend uh, college. You know, so I'd had that experience. I had worked at MTV for six years, you know, doing a lot of, uh, if you're familiar with campaigns like Rock the Vote or Choose or Lose. So I was very familiar with how to use the power of media to engage young people on issues of importance. Um, I'd been at Teach for America in the early days. You know, and, you know, so I, you know, I had, and I'd have been at the White House uh, post 9-11. So, you know, I had this very sort of interesting set of experiences, but I'd gotten exposure to a lot of different types of kids, kids, wealthy kids, poor kids, black kids, white kids, Asian kids, Hispanic kids, you know, kids in homeless shelters. As you mentioned, I'm chairman of the board of Spence Chapin, which is one of the country's premier adoption agencies. So I think a lot, I think a lot about how to get kids um, to develop and achieve their maximum potential. So in 2010, I decided, you know what, let me put myself on the line and actually run schools, you know, because there are a lot of people out there that, yep, 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 yep. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) You know, can I put my ideas in action in the real world? And, uh, you know, when I was at the Gates Foundation, we had also given money to charter schools, which was really emerging as kind of the mechanism within the public school environment to be innovative. And so I partnered up with a colleague of mine that had gone to Harvard Business School with me. And in 2010, I became the CEO of what was then only a small uh, network, two schools of elementary and uh, middle school. So uh, at the time, it was only K to five. We ultimately grew it to pre-K through eighth grade. Uh, And even even prior to pre-K, we started a partnership with a uh, early uh, early literacy uh, home visiting partnership. So imagine starting at 18 months old, we had early literacy specialists going into the homes of our toddlers, the younger siblings of our current students were two times per week, 30 minutes per visit. An early literacy specialist would sit with the caregiver and the toddler on how to become what we call the at-home reading coach. So it was about how, you know, building kids' vocabulary. Anyway, so it was amazing. So we built it in six campuses, you know, more than 2,000 students. Uh, these are six campuses, almost all low-income, almost all Black and Hispanic uh, kids. You know, each year we had maybe, you know, two or 300 open seats. We had nearly 5,000 families on the wait list each year. You know, so... You know, it, it was, I mean, it, it, imagine the joy of, you know, when, and because we were oversubscribed, charter schools have a lottery, right? So parents apply. So imagine the joy when we call those two or 300 families to say, you know, golden ticket, you got it. But then sending a note to literally nearly 5,000, you know, the best we can do is put your name on this excruciatingly long wait list. And so, so, so when you ask the question again, uh, well, are the outcomes of charter schools even valid because it's these parents who have the wherewithal to send their kids to a good school? I mean, yeah, <laughs> but I can tell you a lot of these families have a lot of issues. Um, but the thing that they do have is they have aspirations for their kids. And I would say 
even parents who don't apply to charter schools have aspirations for their kids. And their kids' lives would be improved if they had more choice. Uh, you know, when I hear that argument, it's typically from people who then, their conclusion to that statement is to then discount the value of having a charter school and oppose it. And so they say, well, then let's have everyone in the system not have choice, right? Like somehow they take it to this extreme, which, which I just you know, completely reject. I always hear my dad's voice about this kind of stuff. And my dad had a very sort of, sort of Jewish guy from the Bronx attitude about things, which was sort of like, there are some things that are unfair in life because that's just simply natural. And like, for example, if I say parents who have aspirations for their kids to have a better life are more likely to have kids who have a better life, some people hear that and say, well, that's so unfair. And, and like my dad's voice would say, well, of course it's unfair. It's unfair to be born to a family who's parent with parents that don't want a better life for you. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be happy that the parents, we ha- there shouldn't be opportunities for parents to make better lives for their kids, right? I mean, it's just, Correct. it's one of these weird sort of, it, it really comes down to sort of a Rousseauian versus Lockean kind of worldview where everyone has to be put through the same sausage grinder or no one goes through the sausage grinder, you know, which is just weird. Exactly. That's the ideology. I mean, I, you know, so the, so after running uh, the network of elementary and middle schools I did for 10 years, because we ended at eighth grade, uh, you know, I'd made a 10 year commitment because, you know, one of the things I believe in education is that leaders leave prematurely. Big problem in public education is that teachers leave prematurely, principals leave prematurely, superintendents leave prematurely, you know, because it, the, the, the job is so hard. You know, it's just so hard. It's grinding. Um, I made a 10 year commitment and it was an amazing 10 years. But one of the biggest challenges was at the end of eighth grade, where do the kids go? (laughs) Because, you know, in New York City, like in many other places across the country, basically high schools are pretty bad. You know, they're usually, they're usually some great magnet schools. They're usually some great schools that sort of attract the very top talent. Bronx science and that kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. Like I went to Brooklyn Tech, which is one mm-hmm. of the specialized high schools in New York City. And it was amazing. Um, you know, I studied electrical engineering in high school, which then led me on a path to go study computer science engineering. And, you know, I was on a path. But in New York City, like, for example, where we just opened Vertex Partnership Academies, which is a high school, you know, because I made the decision, the next frontier had to be high school. I needed to figure that out. In this district, of, so in District 12 in the Bronx, where, we, where our high school is now, of the 2,000 or so students in the traditional high schools that start ninth grade, four years later, only 7% graduate from high school ready for college, right? Mm-hmm. 7%, meaning that those kids started ninth grade and they either dropped out or they did earn their high school diploma, but still could not do math nor reading without remediation, right? So, so imagine, and here, and we're in a district where it's capped, meaning that the unions actually have a stranglehold overgrowth so that you can't open new charter schools. I mean, I can talk about why we were able to open up a charter school. We were able to find this very clever legal way to do it. But for that good deed, we were sued. You know, we were sued by the teachers union, which again, I can talk about. But again, so all this is back to the point. Imagine if you were a parent in this district, you have aspirations for your kid. 
And the only choice you have is to send your kid to a school where 93% of the time, right. your kid's not going to graduate ready for, ready for college. And so do we penalize that parent for having higher aspirations, for wanting them to, you know, for affording them the ability to choose? Or do we say to them, eh, you know, yeah, sure, you have aspirations, but maybe the, the other parents don't. So therefore, we're going to take it away. It's, again, this is coming from people who would never, never allow this for their own children. And so I just fight this hypocrisy every single day as much as I can. It's also from the people who are the most likely as a political constituency to talk about the importance of education. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I am, uh, again, long running theme on this podcast. I am increasingly sympathetic to private sector unions. Um, not in every regard, not everyone, but as a general proposition, I get the argument for private sector unions. I have really growing deep problems with public sector unions. Um, and teachers unions, particularly in the wake of all the COVID stuff are, are pretty high on my list. So I, I, I guess the way I, I would want to ask is, is I get the sort of public choice rent seeking guild mentality that says they don't want competition. That's a very common thing in human history. What is the best argument that you've ever, what is the argument that you have to like really dig a little deeper when offered in good faith from, from teachers unions about the problems of charter schools? I mean, is there one or is it just because you've had to have these arguments so many times that you no longer can even get your head around the, the, the best of them? It's hard to be empathetic. (laughs) (laughs) I will confess. No, if I had to tell thousands of families you can't come here every year, I would get really bitter about public sector, about the the war on this stuff. But anyway. Yeah. Well, and and imagine on top of that, we we design a virtues-based high school in the Bronx that is going to allow opportunities for students at the end of their sophomore year to pursue, you know, a college or university pathway, a really rigorous curriculum, or they can pursue, still college oriented, but they can do apprenticeships in high school in their junior, senior year of high school, where you can apprentice at Google or Amazon, do coding or a New York City based hospital where you can learn phlebotomy and become credentialed in those areas. Imagine like, <laughs> you know, cause that's what we did. We spent two years designing this high school. And then six months before we're supposed to open, the, the UFT, the teachers union, sues us. They sue to shut us down before we open. And, and thankfully, you know, one week before school was supposed to open, a New York State Supreme Court judge threw out their case and we were able to open. So it's really hard to be empathetic. Now, I actually met with Randy Weingarten right. during the time that the teachers union was suing us. This was they, they filed their lawsuit in March of 2022. We were supposed to open in August of 2022. And ironically, Randy Weingart and I were on a panel together about education innovation. <laughs> sort of pro, pro and con, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, he, and she was lauding me. Mm-hmm. For some of the things I've, and actually I, I described to you the, the early learning thing I'd done when I was running elementary schools about the, the home visiting. And I was talking about the, the, mo- the high school model we were designing. Cause you know, we even, she and I even talked about, well, maybe we should have teaching be actually one of the pathways, career pathways that we could have, we could have kids start to apprenticeship, 
um, you know, to be junior teachers or assistants. And so we had this conversation and then I sat with her. I'm like, Randy, I want you to know, do you know that your uh, union is suing us in New York? I had no idea. Let me see if I could intervene, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And nothing happened. And, you know, she just said, we got, she told me, you know, well, you're just caught up in the, the charter public school were, you know, uh, conflict and you're just a casualty. And sorry. Like what, what? <laughs> so no, it's very hard for me to be empathetic. It really is. And, um, what I try to do and what many of my fellow leaders in the charter sector do, the way that we fight this battle, because, you know, we've had entrenched elected officials. So it's not only about the unions, it's about mm-hmm. the level of influence that the unions have over certain elected officials. Sure. And the way that we fight that battle is that we put, we just put parents on the front line. You know, maybe they'll look at me. It's like, oh, you're Ian Rowe. You're some charter school leader that's got hedge fund managers by you, behind you. You know, some, some nonsensical narrative that's crafted. And somehow they try to dismiss me or my intentions or our, um, me. I'm talking about collective, uh, school leaders who are trying to create more choice. Right. Your villainous scheme to teach young people virtues and right. send them to college, you know, which is what every Bond villain tries to do. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, but, but by the way, I mean, we laugh, but that is the narrative. I mean, that, that's what's unbelievable. So part of the way we fight it is to just put our parents, you know, we have our parents meet with elected officials and say, please put yourself in my shoes. You know, I'm a 22 year old mom. You know, maybe I made a mistake. I had a kid too early, but whatever mistakes I made in my life, I want my kid to have the best shot. Please, please. Yeah. The, the elementary school that my kid is, is zoned for, you know, 0% of the kids are passing the reading test at third grade. And then there's another school, another block away. Please, please, you know, and that's, that's honestly, that's why I fight so hard. It's for, it's for that parent and for that kid because everything else is nonsense. So, uh, you know, so again, there was this lovely event at AI, uh, Taylor Branch, uh, the great historian was really, really interesting, except for his really profound views about lotteries and some of his etymological arguments about liberal and conservative, but that's me just having fun. It was really great to hear him. But one of the fun things was, was, was the panel that you were on my dear old friend, uh, Robert, Robert A. George. Um, different from Robbie George. R- different from Robert P. George. Um, and I've told this story a million times. Robert A. George, uh, who I've known for almost 25 years, if not longer. Um, in 2004, he wrote a cover story for the New Republic endorsing John Kerry. And I said, the great thing about this is that now the way you can remember the two, the difference between the two Robbie Georges is that the, Rob- the A in Robert A. George stands for apostate. <laughs> um, and, uh, but wow. you talked about how you were from, uh, your, your parents were from Jamaica. No, he's from Trinidad. Rob threw some shade about being from Trinidad. <laughs> you went back and forth about Olympics versus world cup and whatever. And I love that stuff. Well, and I, well, it, I, I owned, I owned Bob Marley and reggae, you know, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, I think you come out the winner there, but that's <laughs> maybe that's just my anti-soccer thing. Uh, my late sister-in-law was from Haiti and I got to know members of her family. And one of the things I've always sort of found fascinating is the 
cultural dynamics between native born Amer- African Americans and immigrant. You know, I, mean, I think I think the numbers are that the single most educated demographic in America, I believe, are Nigerian immigrants. Yep. yep. Um, if not, it's close, right? You yep. know, I mean, and education as well as uh, wealth, family wealth. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. And so I'm just wondering, without I, I don't want this to turn into some sort of South Bronx Tong War thing, but um, um, how much of that do you see in the student populations that you're dealing with? Because it seems like, without again, it's sort of like this ideal versus, without demonizing others. I think it's fair to say that immigrant blacks in America import with them more of the American dream stuff, more of the yep. education will get you free. That's why you're coming to this country, the aspirational thing. And I'm just wondering, like, how do you navigate those waters? How do you see it? So it's absolutely true. You know, John Ogbu did, has done research on this years ago. And it's a tough conversation, uh, especially within the Black community. Because, you know, I sometimes say this joke, you know, um, you know, I'm, wa- I'm walking down the street as, you know, me, Ian Rose, a um, Jamaican immigrant, and uh, I'm walking down the street, and there's a white supremacist, uh, you know, lurking on the corner, like oppressing every other black person that uh, walks by him. But as I come along, he's about to oppress me, and then says, oh, wait, oh, you're Jamaican-American, you're Jamaican, <laughs> so you're good, you go. And it's a, it's a, it's a horrible joke and all that, and people criticize me for it, but but it's really hard to sustain the systemic racism narrative when you have such outsized success of Nigerian Americans, Ghanaians, you know, certain members, certainly Caribbean Americans, but not all, of course, because again, nothing in life is guaranteed. And also there are many fabulous native born uh, African Americans who are thriving. But what it suggests, though, is that perhaps the institutional racism, the systemic racism, the structural racism, perhaps whatever factors those may have played over the course of the history of the United States, we're in a different situation today. So I often say to people, okay, well, if you insist on institutional racism, if you insist on structural racism, if you insist on, you know, systemic racism, then I have to insist on a different type of racism which is surmountable racism, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that unfortunately in human history, I don't think there's any society, including by the way, in African or Caribbean societies where race and racism were not issues, whether it even be like dark-skinned black people versus light-skinned black people, you know? And so the question is, what is it? What is it that when you do look at Nigerian Americans, and again, people will say, well, you're taking just the, the top 1% because the people that come from Nigeria are already predisposed. And perhaps that's true. Perhaps that's true. Or perhaps it's, there's some truth to it, but it's not everything to it either. Right? Exactly. And, but, but, the, but the point I raise, it's not disqualifying of what it is that they're coming with. If they're coming with a high value placed on marriage and stable families, if they're coming with a high value placed on education and studying at home and commitment to that ethos, if they're coming with high value placed on religion and faith, then perhaps there's something we can learn from that, mm-hmm. right? It's not to, it, we, are so, we are so obsessed with failure and, and analyzing pathology 
we often overlook, well, what is it that's contributing to those segments of society which seem to consistently be successful? And, and in fact, successful against the forces that you are saying are insurmountable to everyone else. And that is what I am so determined to push through. What are the factors that truly drive human flourishing, regardless of race? And so it's a very tough conversation. A couple of years ago, so I went to Harvard Business School, and a couple of years ago, actually, yeah, it was right after um, um, George Floyd murder incident, and Harvard Business School, which unfortunately is going through its own kind of woke metamorphosis, uh, invited uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones to speak at the business school. And it was right after she had launched the New York Times 1619 Project, which presumably your listeners are familiar with. But let's just say it paints a very distorted view of the United States, right? And, uh, and so the person organizing this visit by Nicole Hannah-Jones, I didn't, I didn't know this, but was a native-born Black American. And I wrote, and I couldn't make, because I was going to go and listen and, you know, respectfully disagree, but I was going to try and provide a, an, emp- an empowering alternative as I try to position my, my, uh, my contributions. But I couldn't make it. So I wrote to the young woman who uh, was organizing this trip, who was very excited and very proud that she was bringing Nicole Hannah-Jones there. And I wrote to her, I said, you know, I, I can't make it, but, but I'd, I'd like to you know, submit a question or let you know that there's some of us, there's some black alumni, this is primarily for black um, uh, students. And I said, there's some black alumni who disagree with the way in which she uh, portrays this country. And the, the person wrote back to me, it was a single line response, where are you from? <laughs> and I and I wrote to her. Well, I well I'm, you know, I've lived in the United States for most of my life, but you know I was born in London. My parents are Jamaican, and uh, you know so I, I that is a part of who I am. And she wrote back this long response. Like she was she's from Louisiana. You know you don't understand. This is what my family's been through, and just it was just it was amazing. Like she her perception of of uh, whatever characteristics I value and I hold are those that are in short supply to her or her, what people call ADOS. I don't know if you ever hear that term, you know, African descendants of slaves. And so we're like these foreign beings, Mm -hmm. we being, you know, immigrant Americans who, who practice what I call surmountable racism, because we believe that there are institutions like family, faith, education, that put us in a position where we can have agency above those forces. And so, but I don't believe it's inherent to me because my parents were from Jamaica, West Indies, that I have those characteristics inherently, nor is it that I feel that this young woman from Louisiana doesn't have access to those things. And in fact, she probably does because she's at Harvard Business School, right? And so we need to divorce this idea that there are inherent characteristics based on someone's race or their gender, whatever. Mm-hmm. We're individuals first. The question is, how do we strengthen the institutions? And we talked about this yesterday, even with the March on Washington. From a policy perspective, we've gone a long way to remove a lot of the legal barriers that stood in the way of people really realizing their human potential. And now it's much more about cultural strengthening. 
And that's why families matter, faith, educational choice, and freedom. That's it. So this is a long answer to your question about... No, it's very interesting. Yeah. But that, that's, that's, that's at the heart of whether you're from Trinidad, Jamaica, Brooklyn, the American dream is within your grasp. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've got to convince kids of. Not that they got to do it on their own, but that there are institutions that if they really commit themselves to, and virtues like courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom, they can lead the life that they want. That's what I want our kids to believe. Yeah, I mean, um, there's so many places, so many directions to go with this. I mean, just two thoughts. One is sort of what we were talking about at the beginning. The value of education in all of these things is, again, they're not guarantees of success. They're hedges against failure, right? I mean, this is why in, in the, is a gross generalization, Jewish mothers want their kids to be doctors or lawyers. It's because you'll never, you'll never go hungry if you're a doctor or lawyer. You won't necessarily be rich, but you won't be poor, right? It is a, it is a, it's a hedge against disaster. My father-in-law, who wasn't, a, wasn't Jewish, but was a self-made man who swam the Danube to escape the communists, he always used to say to his kids when they um, came up with far-fetched ideas about what they wanted to do with their lives, he would say, yeah, but can you eat it? And the idea was, was that, I love that if you do something that is directly tied into human necessity, there's always going to be a market for it. There's always going to be a need for it. And, um, and so that's a buzz phrase in my household is, yeah, but can you eat it? But, uh, you know, the author, African-American author, Albert Brooks, was it Albert of Brooks? Course. No, no, no. For, for the, the Omni-American. Yeah. The Omni-Americans. I've always loved this argument that African-Americans in many ways they're not so much peripheral to America. They are in many ways the essential Americans in so many ways, certainly culturally America without the African-American contribution is a very different country. And both on the, both in the negative story about slavery, but yep. also on the positive story about jazz and all these in the blues Everything, and, right. and, and a thousand other things. Right. And, um, but it seems to me that part of that argument, and I don't know if, I can't remember if this is in Brooks or not, is that in some ways I've always thought that, African-American descendants of slaves are the most European of Americans in, in this sense. Part of the problem with the old world as American, you know, as we used to refer to Europe is that it was so weighed down by history is that you, know, you, you, you talk to my friend, Michael Brendan Dorley at national review, and he can explain why he should hate the English for something that they did 700 years ago. Right. And, um, Europe was full of all of these ancient tribal animosities. And the great thing about the new world was that you got to put all that behind you. And there was self-selective for the people who came here. And so the people, the African-Americans from, with a, from Africa, from, from the West Indies, from Caribbean, um, they're much more like the sort of classic story of an American immigrant who puts their past behind them because they want to do over. Correct. I think that this is the, the obsession with history is part of the cultural challenge, but it's the one that, that, that I think somewhat counterproductively, I don't want to forget how bad slavery was and how important the civil rights movement was, but you can become so obsessed with the history that it becomes an excuse for not giving your all in the here and now. It's, well, especially if the, if the telling of the history is a cherry-picked 
uh, version that only pulls out the most egregious negative examples of behavior of the U.S. government and the populace. Because, by the way, there were lots of horrible ones. But if, if that's... But that's also, I mean, just to say, that's, that's also a very human thing to do. You don't have to dra- drag it into ideology. The Irish do that about the English, too. They don't talk about anything good they ever got from the English, <laughs> right. right? You know, right. that's what... Humans complain about what bad people did to their ancestors. That's a right. human thing, right? Well, you know, I, I've worked with Bob Woodson. You know, we developed a curriculum, again, in response to the 1619 Project, where we created a, a curriculum about the African-American experience Experience in the United States from a historical perspective. And our, and our view is warts and all. Mm-hmm. You tell the whole story. So you don't just right. tell the story about the Tulsa massacre. You actually also tell, well, how is it that during Jim Crow segregation, that all these black people were able to accumulate this incredible wealth and create Black Wall Street prior to the Tulsa massacre, and then also tell the story of the rebuilding Afterwards, I mean, one of the things so you just you just said something very interesting, which is that, um, you know, would America be America without the contribution of black people? Nicole Hannah-Jones, again, the author of the New York Times 1619 Project, the lead author, she actually makes this point. She says America wasn't a democracy until the fulfillment of or the fight of black people to really check if you lived up to your ideals. And so there is some actual truth to that. Mm-hmm. But the mistake she and that ideology make is that they completely abandon the principles upon which the country has able to become this more perfect union. I mean, she literally says the founding principles were false when they were written. The principles themselves, not man's ability of living up to them, but the principles themselves are false. And this, this is like, this is the fight I think we're in as a country. What I put it, you know, I put it in the context of agency versus equity you know this idea that you're owed something that the the country is inherently racist you know this is the equity you know inherently oppressive based on race class gender you know blah 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 or agency that there are institutions that can help fulfill the every individual um fulfill their potential and this is the battle like we're 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 on a precipice as a country well maybe that maybe that's too (laughs) maybe that's too dramatic but this is the fight and I want my students in my schools to know that they can do hard things, that they're not just, you know, Martin Luther King had to say, you know, are you just flotsam and jetsam on the river of life where you're just mm-hmm. kind of, you, you know, you're just, you're dependent on, you know, you don't have control, basically. You have control or you have the greatest level of control, but you're not on your own. There are institutions that matter. And governmentally, we've made a lot of progress as a country. But now we have to look ourselves in the eye and talk about the things that really matter, you know? And, and again, I'll, I know I'm a broken record on these things, but I feel like I need to be a broken record. Families matter. Educational freedom matters. Faith matters. That's the trifecta. And when you got those, it usually leads to kind of an entrepreneurial mindset, someone who works, has a work ethic. That's it. Doesn't mean that things like structural barriers don't matter or we've got to change policies, particularly around things like school choice, but we, we, we have to remind ourselves of the basis upon which this country was created and why it's worked for so many people for so long. And that's my story. And that's what I'm sticking to. <laughs> I could keep going, but that's a great ending. So <laughs> um, you stuck the landing. Uh, Ian Rowe, thank you so much for doing this. This is great. 
Jonah. I'm, I'm, it took us two years, but I'm glad we finally got it done. Me too, really. I, mean, I hope you'll come back because I have a lot more I can come at you with. Okay, so let's do it. Okay, so uh, Ian Rowe has left the building and um, I really enjoyed the conversation. You know, you can have problems with the idea of charter schools as an institutional sort of public policy kind of program. I don't. I'm generally in favor of charter schools. I get some of the arguments about, you know, scarce resources. I think that they kind of fall on deaf ears to me to a certain extent, or I like, I don't give them that much weight because we have been consistently increasing how much we spend on public schools for the last 50 years and we've gotten worse results over time. So I don't really buy this idea that the explanation can all be found in scarce resources. But even if you come out on a different side of that at the macro policy level, it's very hard for me to see how you could argue that Ian Rowe isn't on the side of the angels and what he's trying to do and how he's, he's trying to be effective where he can and how he can. And he's just an incredibly nice and decent dude. And I had lots of other things we could go on with, but we had some technological problems at the beginning um, and had to do a do-over. And if you heard occasional crackling, it was, there was an issue with his mic. Apologize for that. And I, didn't, I just didn't want to keep him um, any longer. Uh, but we will have him back, um, whether you like it or not. And um, beyond that, we're having some very interesting internal conversations about what should become ex external conversations in terms of uh, new product lines and new organizations at the dispatch. And some of that will be made, will be made known in due course. Uh, probably I'll talk about it a little bit on the solo podcast. Other than that, uh, thanks again to Ian Rowe and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.